The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Zai Vipra is a research fellow at the AI Now Institute, where she focuses on competition issues in frontier AI models. She recently published the report Computational Power and AI, which focuses on compute as a core dependency in building large-scale AI. We found this report to be an important addition to the work covering the generative AI industry because compute is incredibly important, but not very well understood. In the report, Zai breaks down the key components of compute, analyzes the supply chain and competitive dynamics, and aggregates all the known economics. In this interview, we talk with Zai about the report, its implications, and her recommendations for industry and policy responses. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. What inspired you to write this report? Two things I would say. One, that compute is a big input into AI systems. We realized that it was quite a preoccupation in AI companies. And the other thing being that um, compute is already emerging as a level of um, AI governance. It is driving policies like um, the U.S. government's export controls. Um, So it is uh, front and center in AI governance as a topic. But we realized that there was no comprehensive report on compute. Uh, So we decided to fill that gap and also to increase our own understanding of the topic. I found your report to be um, uh, very helpful and fascinating. I mean, the compute is a big topic. It's one that is um, also um, pretty mysterious, right, in terms Mm -hmm. of uncovering the facts still. Um, Why don't we start with, can you um, define compute for our audience in terms of how you think about it? Sort of what are the key components in compute so that people can sort of get their their heads around what what it actually means? Yeah, I think um, it's a really good question. And this is how we start the report as well, because compute, uh, what you mean by compute can really differ based on what you're talking about and the context in which you're saying it. So uh, at a very basic level, it can mean the chips that are used to train uh, or even run an AI system. So graphics processing units or GPUs. Uh, It can also include the software that is used to run these chips because they're really specialized. You need specialized software to run them. Uh, You need domain-specific languages as well, and sometimes these are part of the compute uh, stack, as it were. Um, But sometimes you can also use compute to describe the entire infrastructure, uh, that is, data centers um, that... uh, allow the use of all of these chips together um, in one set for the training and running of a model. 
So it, it really depends on what you're talking about. And we look at all of these meanings of compute in the report. I liked how in the report you talked about sort of two big um, use cases for compute, um, the big two categories. There's a lot of conversation and a lot of coverage around training and how much it costs to train these models, mostly because there's some amount of data, right? So Mm -hmm. some amount of disclosure, at least in previous versions. Mm -hmm. Now it feels like we don't really know, you know, there's sort of supposition about how much GPT-4 costs to train because the major players in this market decide that it's a um, competitive advantage to keep that quiet. But then there's this other major category of inference, right, which is the, the running of the model when you actually are prompting and getting a response. And it feels like that's still pretty much a mystery. Is that true? Like how much do you feel like there's, you're able to get your hands around exactly how much it costs to, to execute a prompt, if you will. Yeah, it's really opaque, and it was one of the most challenging um, problems we had in trying to find out how much inference really costs. Uh, and, you know, there's very little published material on this because it really differs from chip to chip and also the kind of model you're using, how, how much you're optimizing for that particular set of chips and so on. Um, and some of the strongest evidence we have is, for instance, Sam Altman's tweet about how much inference costs and, uh, you know, just people talking about this. So there, there is no good data, but uh, we know that one inference, so, you know, um, one query, for instance, to a chatbot costs very, very little, uh, but that these costs really add up if you have millions of users. So millions of people querying chat GPT, for instance, uh, would eventually lead to the inference cost as a whole being larger than the training cost as a whole. So while the unit cost of inference is really small, the total cost is really quite large. Yeah, and it feels to me like there's this huge band because if you mm-hmm. go to a chat GPT today and you ask, you know, five different questions and get five responses, that'll be relatively small. But if you are interacting with something like Pi, the emotional AI app, and having a long conversation that might be, you know, hour, it could be hours of time over a span of just a day having this long in-depth conversation that would seem to be, you know, that much more, right? Sort of a linear progression of, of cost um, uh, of compute. Yeah, exactly. And especially if you're a business, these costs really add up. If you're a business based on using an AI model from another business, so for instance, from OpenAI, you really have to think about the cost of inference because this is going to end up being your primary cost, even if it's replacing people. So there was a time in which I think a few businesses figured that, Actually, it was costing the same as uh, hiring people because the cost of inference was so high at the time. Um, Now they're low, but we also think that um, sort of the costs of inference should really be public or should at least be disclosed to regulators because without knowing what these costs actually are and how they correspond to the price paid by businesses to use these models through APIs, it's hard to establish whether there is predatory pricing in any sense. Um, you know, whether uh, for what, which is to say whether businesses uh, or the AI companies are pricing them way below cost 
in order to capture markets or not. So it, it's I think it's very important information to have out there. That's interesting. I hadn't um, hadn't thought about that, but of course, you pointed out it's 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 an obvious pricing strategy. Um, sure. Because um, I think one of the things that 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 I particularly appreciated about this report was that it um, it it nudged it it nudges people nudges the reader out of any state of um, sort of complacency about the cost of compute because we've yeah. we've we just haven't thought about it for yeah. th- for twenty years. It just hasn't, you know, everything, your know, services have been free, been paid for by advertising, blah, blah, blah. But these costs are so significant and um, so much a part of the decision as to how to deploy and even to design products, I assume, that um, you, you actually have to sort of start with this in a way that we've never had to start with it before. Um, over the last decade, people have put, you know, moved entire um, corporate infrastructure into the cloud. Um, there's now significant, um, uh, you know, lock-in and switching costs in terms of cloud provision. And suddenly this report sort of makes it really clear that this whole ecosystem is really about the fact that the cloud is not free mm-hmm. <laughs> and, at all. And um, if, if you were worried about your cloud costs before, then you really need to be much more sensitive to them from now on. Um, in terms of thinking through helping people understand how significant this could be and um, what are the, the kind of key questions they should have in their minds as they think about um, adopting this technology, replacing people, designing products, you know, how, how many prompts should people be allowed to use before they um, either... I sort of the, the the conversation is allowed to sort of tail off. Um, what are the key things that 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 you, that you've been left with as the questions that um, people should be asking when they're thinking about adopting Gen AI? Yeah, I think um, one that you're right. It it has become quite a significant question, uh, and I'll just elaborate on that in a bit. But also two that we need to look at. Uh, two different markets. One, the market for um, the AI models themselves and everything that feeds into that, including compute, but then also the downstream markets, uh, so businesses that use these AI models to uh, carry out their work. So in terms of the significance of compute, I think um, it has become much uh, clearer in recent years because, you know, OpenAI's whole turn towards trying to make a profit and not providing all the uh, models uh, publicly was motivated, of course, by safety concerns, but also by concerns of uh, the cost of compute. And this is why they had to uh, seek out the agreement with Microsoft. Similarly for DeepMind, um, it agreed to be acquired by Google because the cost of compute was so high. And then uh, it was merged completely into Google recently because um, no one wanted to duplicate the cost of compute within one organization. So it, it is quite uh, significant. I think, uh, you know, the starting point that we uh, had for this report was because the scale uh, of models has gotten so large, um to make a highly capable model, you have to have a really large model. And uh, for that, you need to use highly capable chips. Um, 
we uh, started from this fact from a CSET report that said that uh, if you use trailing node chips, um, your uh, your model the, your model will be at least thirty three times more expensive than any a model that uses uh, the most advanced uh, state of the art chips. And um, I think this this is something that businesses downstream should really take into consideration because if you're trying to build your own uh, model, this depends on how good you want your model to be. Perhaps your business can do well with just having. Um, a model that is not as good as GPT-4, for instance, but uh, approaches those capabilities. And then you can have a smaller model um, uh, and not worry about it. But if you want uh, the highest capabilities that are out there, you have to depend on these models because unless you are part of a big tech uh, group, it's going to be really hard for you to invest and start building these models from scratch. The, 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 the thirty-three like, times is something that stacks. So we, you know, we, we, yeah. Just for those who haven't been tracking, <laughs> we're in the world of where people suppose that some of the training of these models is getting to the, you know, an order of magnitude, sort of, sort of like a hundred million dollars. Like that's that's where we're sort of headed. Thirty-three times would mean that would be three point three billion, right? Let's just get the get the get the the numbers in scale, and that that points to how important those most advanced chips are, right? And you do talk in the report about industry consolidation or sort of concentration, sorry. Um, and what I'm curious about is if you can talk a bit about that, that, that real concentration. Where is it? You talk about it in different parts of the stack. I found that to be really helpful to sort of see beyond, you know, right now the, the narrative is all, well, it's all about NVIDIA, right? Well, well we know that because that's obvious. They're the, yeah. they're the GPU company. But you talk about other points of concentration, and I think it'd be helpful if you could just sort of talk through a couple of those. Yeah, I think it starts all the way from uh, the designing of the chip, which is uh, what NVIDIA does, but then uh, the manufacturing of um, semiconductors, which uh, I think is a notoriously concentrated industry. I haven't seen an industry that is more concentrated. Uh, you know, for instance, ASML in the Netherlands is the only company that makes one of the components uh, that is required to manufacture semiconductors. You can't do without it for the most um, advanced chips. Uh, that's just one company. TSMC is the only company that can build certain kinds of advanced chips. Uh, again, that's just one company. Uh, you know, there's Intel, there's AMD, but uh, primarily it's these three companies. Uh, there's also electronic design automation software, which is the software that automates the design of the chip itself. And uh, that market is less clear in terms of what is really going on there. But again, it's, it's a few U.S. companies that uh, dominate here as well is what we know. So it's um, wherever it seems wherever you look in the supply chain for AI chips, there is a significant concentration. So there are multiple points where you would have to um, intervene if you so desired. Um, yeah, I, I think that you can't have a single track um, approach to this market. Hi, it's Dave with just a brief interruption. If you're enjoying our podcast, We'd love it if you'd share it with someone who you think might enjoy it too. And check out everything that Artificiality has to offer at artificiality.world. Reach out anytime. We'd love to hear from you. 
Back to the interview. At one point in the report, you talk a bit about um, uh, recommendations for policymakers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if you could highlight some of those that you think are most important. I mean, especially in this question of concentration and yeah. access to capital, because the only way to disrupt the concentration that's in the market is for new companies to be started. Those new companies yeah. that are going to be started are going to come from large pools of capital. So it's sort of there's some level of diversification in the venture capital industry, but it's still going to be highly concentrated. But can you talk a little bit about the sort of recommendations you have for policymakers? Yeah. Um, the first One of the first things we say is that there is a clear case for antitrust scrutiny um, in that there are, like I described, so many choke points along the supply chain for AI compute uh, so we really think that there should be more scrutiny into um, changing the structure of this market entirely, um, as well as some new recommendations that haven't been made before, such as looking at the software layer of compute. So, for instance, NVIDIA's uh, CUDA, uh, which, you know, aside from being just very optimized for NVIDIA's own chips, it also has a really active developer ecosystem. And for any competitor, that's almost impossible to overcome as, as a barrier. Um, if you, if antitrust authorities do not want to break these uh, layers apart, uh, they can also consider some kind of interoperability. But this sort of uh, policy action requires a lot more study and scrutiny. Uh, We also talk about non-discrimination obligations um, for, you know, different actors in this um, ecosystem. Uh, You know, it's early days, but uh, I think the actions required for creating competitive markets become much more severe the more locked in the monopoly gets. And uh, ironically, ex-ante regulation like this can be less interventionist if it's done at the right time and the right manner. We also talk about data protection um, because, you know, it's not about compute, but the more you are unable to compete on the basis of compute, the more important data becomes. Uh, So the Palm 2 technical report uh, talked about um, how better quality data improved the capabilities of uh, a model that was smaller than, you know, another model that didn't have such good data. So data becomes really, really valuable. But we know uh, that most of the data that is valuable is controlled by a few companies. So we talk about how how data protection and other uh, laws can help ensure that... um, the most capable models aren't built only by the companies that control most of the data. Um, we uh, we also think that the incentives for paradigm shifts or bringing about paradigm shifts are really high. So it is not per se a recommendation. Uh, but the fact that the UK has decided to pour in so much money into quantum computing uh, the fact that China has very little options now, given the export controls, than to, um, aside from circumventing those export controls, also looking at new paradigms such that uh, current technology becomes irrelevant. So I we are expecting sort of new developments in some sort of new paradigms, too early to say which one. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think these are our 
primary recommendations um i can just go into any one if you would like before we do that because i think that that would be really valuable but some of these numbers i think giving people a bit of a a perspective on on we're not talking about you know double or triple here we're talking um everything has a has a zero on it you know it's an order of magnitude difference um there were some sort of startling stats that I think um, really sh- sort of shift your mindset or give you a, 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 a there's sort of a, almost a call to action that's just so big, like you had the 33 times. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, the, the the difference between what academia has access to versus what private companies have access to, I knew that was big, but I didn't know it was as big as 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 um, as you as it as in the report, as you outline in the report. And there's a number of of these um, quite startling stats that they don't just speak to the the scale of of what we're facing or or what people expect in terms of the scaling aspects of compute and how big these models can get. They actually speak to almost a fundamental rethink of how you Mm -hmm. actually even conceptualise where this compute is going to be. Uh, who's going to pay for this electricity? Where's the water going to come from? Um, who's going to have access to it under what sort of conditions? Um, if the brute force of scale and compute is this big, um, how do you think about creating extraordinarily valuable data sets? Um, it, it's so strategic to um, to think about this the the, the sheer scale of 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 um, the numbers here. Um, what were some of the things that sort of surprised you that you went, whoa, when I did, wow, that's bigger than I thought? Yeah, no, I think uh, first I fully agree with you. Writing the report really um, made us question the, about the need for such an extractive and expensive resource to be put towards AI models in their current form especially uh, because at the moment the drive uh, towards uh, a use case seems to be towards making personal assistance. And we really just started questioning the need for this use case to use up these many social and ecological resources. Uh, you know, we think we're far beyond the time that AI research was motivated with a view towards true transformation, or, you know, social good. It, it is very evidently market driven now, at least that is the predominant driver. And, you know, even the utopianism from some AI companies is now tinged with a sort of market realism. So we think it's the perfect time to take a step back and assess uh, the state of AI. And uh, compute, of course, is a great uh, vantage point for that clarity. Uh, In terms of what really surprised me, there were a couple of things. One, like you said, uh, the difference between academia and industry. So there's a report that is, I think, yet to come out uh, that we cite that says um, academia, the largest academia developed model uses only 1% of the compute that was used to train the largest industry model. And that is such a large difference. And it has happened in such a few short years. Um, It has caught everyone by surprise. Uh, At least it caught me by surprise. Uh, I was also surprised at um, some of the emergent strategies of NVIDIA and uh, the cloud companies. Uh, so NVIDIA wanting to create more competition in the cloud market so that 
uh, their own returns are not affected because they supply to the cloud market. So uh, they're trying to use companies, uh, in our view, like Coveve to sort of create this competition in the cloud market. Um, and also uh, the effort by cloud companies to create more competition in chip design by trying to design their own AI chips. Um in this mix, there are also AI startups that don't want their own cloud providers to compete with them down the road. And so they're choosing uh, cloud providers who don't have any plans for creating AI models or who won't push their own chips on them. And so it's a market where everyone's trying to create more competition, but um, you know they're also all trying to consolidate their own little markets. So and it's ultimately all a very small group of companies. So it's almost um, really primed for intervention. Um, I was also a little um, taken aback by how much of the, uh, you know, AI market growth is encouraged by cloud service providers' own incentives to grow. So it turns out the more AI models are developed and used, the more demand there is for cloud services. And it's often not possible to disentangle how much of AI's promise is seen by end users and how much of this promise is conveniently professed by cloud companies for their own um, market reasons. So that that is even now a little difficult to understand. What are the top couple of things that you really wish you could have figured out? Like if you were saying, ah, oh, you know, if there was like, you know, just a couple of things that I wish was disclosed or I wish that was under that you could have found some data on, what would have been the most important things? Exact costs and exact prices would be just amazing. You know, that that would really just there's so much speculation that needs to be done now, but uh, that would really uh, be very useful and I'm hoping that if there is any um, regulatory action, that these costs are revealed at least to regulators. I, I think, you know, beyond that, it's really uh, about how deep you would like to go into the technical nature of these things. But it, it's actually the economic information that is really quite opaque at the moment. No one even knows the total training costs exactly of models. Uh, they don't know, you know, how many chips were used and so on. So. Yeah, we're sort of getting used to, uh, yeah. as a user, this sort of $20 a month seems to be the price yeah. point. $100 a year is what they seem to be charging. But as you highlight, we have no visibility to know whether that is a profitable business model or if we're essentially getting sucked into using a product and eventually those prices are going to go up because, uh, you know, they're, they're operating at a loss today. Or based on your usage, it's going to change because inference cost scales based on the number of usage. Um, or if there's some sort of opportunity to reduce cost, we're just, we're just sort of in some ways blindly rushing into this future without understanding enough of the basics to know what it really costs. Um, and I wonder how long it'll take um, before we really do know. Um, there's some level of public disclosure, obviously, from the you know, major tech companies, but they don't break down a lot of these numbers, you know, in the way that we'd like to know. And, you know, the biggest company sitting out there is OpenAI, and they clearly don't, they're clearly not open anymore. Um, mm. But I, I don't know, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, 
I'm just, that's sort of a conundrum, I think, for everyone is to say, well, we're not sure whether this is sustainable or not. I have noticed myself one new, new thing that happened for me in ChatGPT, I think it was just this week. So I was asking it for, to do something, and I had it uh, create a list of, I think there were 14 things. And I said, oh, okay, okay, but go back and um, write three descriptions for each of those 14 things. And it went through and it said one, three descriptions, two, and so on. No, 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 no. Complete the list of 14. But it fell, and that just happened to me a few times in a, in a row on the same day, and it sure felt like there's a change and a tweak in the application that is gating how long the response is, how many tokens it's generating to try and reduce that inference cost. So I think that, along with reading this report, it was like there was the perfect timing to go, uh-huh, you're totally right, that it could be inference cost is way more expensive than we're thinking, and that's they're redesigning the product to try and reduce that cost. Well, and also, yeah, we have no insight at all into whether um, uh, the all prompts are the same, right? Mm. So, um, it, it, it's you could it, when these first came out and they were strongly rationed, um, people developed these extraordinary long prompts. You know, people would spend an hour putting an essay together and then hit go. Um, and now I've noticed that 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 um, it, you know you you don't get great answers out of ChatGPT if you have these really long prompts. That's mm. almost like it's starting to collapse, and the product design is responding to this cost. Um, it's all very anecdotal. There's no way you can really test it, um, or no way we can really test it. And I haven't seen anyone look at different. Um, styles of prompts and and whether or not it's um, there's any impact on on cost, but you've got to kind of think there is right. You've got to believe that there that not all prompts are created equal in terms of their cost. Yeah, I think that uh, that might actually be the case. Um, you know, some AI companies are now increasing the context length in that uh, you're able to ask for longer uh, input, longer prompts and get longer uh, answers. Uh, but I, I think that really might be the case. And I, I think that eventually whether uh, this whole industry is sustainable, um, you know, economically or not really depends on whether uh, the end use of these models ends up being as economically useful as people think. So if the businesses uh, or consumers who use uh, large language models uh, actually start seeing some economic returns, uh, it will make sense to pay this much for it and it will make sense to use all of this compute, at least in a commercial sense, um, to to run these models. But um, I, I think that that will take a little bit more time to actually pan out and for everyone to realize how much commercial um, sense these models really do make for for businesses. Mm. There, there's some forecasts out there about the, the growth of the cost, right? And it's mostly around training, again, because people haven't really figured out how to, how to, how to uh, analyze and forecast the inference cost. But the training forecast, um, some of them show you know, continued exponential growth. And going so far as to finding that crossover point, because everybody likes that, of crossing over the and, and becoming greater than the U.S. GDP, right? Um, 
I'm curious what you think about these sort of forecasts and the growth as you step back and looked at it from a, you know, a global perspective. Um, do you think that those forecasts, how realistic do you think those forecasts are in terms of the cost that will be required, but also the cost that can be absorbed? Yeah, I don't believe that the costs can be absorbed just yet because, um, you know, like I said, we're yet to see the actual economic benefits of uh, using these models at such a large scale. Um, But if we see those benefits and they would have to be really quite large, uh, only then are you uh, going to justify these costs. Um, But I do think that they are realistic in terms of... uh, the projections themselves, I, you know, if you do want larger models, you're going to have uh, you're going to have that much compute unless um, there are very good breakthroughs in using less compute. And we've talked about some of the ways in which that could happen too. Um, you know, you could just have really good chips. Uh, the next generation of chips could be so good that you don't need so many of them and that they don't cost so much. Uh, but that's a bit, uh, you know, it's not a great bet. You could uh, use smaller models and try to make them better. But again, the research shows that they don't really approach the capabilities of large models. You could use decentralized trainings, but uh, there are sort of unsolved problems in terms of security and the heterogeneity of data in that um or you could just have better quality data, but we are not really sure about, you know, the actual returns on that either. So it, it feels like at the moment there is no escape from scale if you want to keep getting better and better, um, you know, along the same LLM paradigm. One of the major tech companies that um, mostly gets overlooked in this conversation is Apple. You know, they haven't come out with a major LLM or image model. They're not big consumers of GPUs. They're relying on the open source community, it's, it appears. Although it's Apple, you never really know what's going on. And the scale of the company, they could bury quite a lot inside the company and you wouldn't really know. But I'm curious if you have any perspective. One of the ways that we've been thinking about it is that Apple actually um, has a unique advantage in that their, um, if you will, inference chips, right, the ones to actually run the model, are actually in everyone's iPhones. Um, and so they're, they're an intriguing sort of counterpoint to all of this because they don't need to go buy data centers to run these models. They've already been paid to ship iPhones that can run models. Um, but I'm curious if anything that you did in your research came up that like, can shed some light or had any perspective on Apple, because it is usually the company that's kind of left out of the conversation. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is the exact thing you said in terms of if decentralized training really takes off and if uh, Apple or someone else decides that it's time to solve the problems uh, that exist with decentralized training. Apple could be in a very good position to take advantage of that. But I am i don't think anything else really came up. But it is quite a notable um, exception at the moment. It's been a, little, a short amount of time since the report came out. I'm curious what kind of reaction it's gotten. Yeah, from what I'm seeing, people are really happy that it's um, comprehensive. Uh, like I said, 
I don't think a report uh, that tackled all the questions people had about compute really existed before. So I, I think that that has been the biggest value add. And like you said, I think it has made uh, it clear for a lot of people from what they're saying, um, you know, what the market is really like and uh, what the interventions need to be. Um, so I, I think people... Uh, are finding it easy to come to their own conclusions on the basis of all the information in the report about um, what needs to be done about the compute market. I think everyone's converging that something needs to be done. I'm really, I'm curious about, and there's a bit of a backtrack here, but there's two other things that I'm curious about from a competitive sort of dynamics perspective. Um, One is the, the opportunities for collusion, um, that we ha- may not have seen in, in the compute market before. And the other is um, the bi- sort of unexpected or, or value shifts that have been kind of local but may become more global. And what's on my mind there is these data centres are, are colossal. They're going to get more colossal. Um, and they're often built with some degree, in, especially in the US, of, of tax um, break or a le- cheaper electricity cost. You know, you might be um, offered incentives to build in a certain state because you can, you can get electricity at half a cent a kilowatt hour or something like that. And ultimately, that's a pretty big value shift that happens, um, but... Is there something about the scale of this that just fundamentally shifts that and alters that? Um, that was one of the, the the other things that had occurred to me. Just simply when you're talking about the amount of electricity that you're going to and resources that you're going to consume with some of these forecasts through into the late 2020s, early 2030s, um, if it feels like it's a different world, it feels like it shifts to a different kind of state of um, of pricing as much as anything yeah i haven't thought very deeply about that but uh, i saw a report today i don't know by whom which said that uh, data centers as a whole today consume uh, more energy than entire nations uh you know and several nations uh so i think that this is a question that people are going to have to ask um because you know it's obviously and a crucial time for uh, climate-related questions. And is this really the sort of um, end we want to put uh, all our scarce ecological resources to, especially at subsidized rates, I think is going to be a big question. Well, that might be a a topic for a future report. Um, I think there's definitely some some pretty interesting... um, data to dig into in terms of the sustainability. I think you're right, and that's a, it's a, it's a really well um, put um, sort of frame is, is this where we want to put our, our, our scarce resources right now? And part of that key question is how much resources? You know, we, we, you, know you, you hear the story of some 5 to 50 prompts consumes a 16-ounce you know, bottle of clean water. You know, we, we, we sort of have little anecdotes, but um, so far I haven't seen a very thorough report like yours on the sustainability of the industry, but um, maybe you'll do that next. Mm, I was um, going to say, what are you working on next? Yes, <laughs> I guess that is the, how about that as a final question? What, is, uh, what are you working on next? I'm working on um, a document just looking at 
uh, what strategies uh, a country like India should have in in this sort of compute market because it's not a world leader at all in compute, um, you know, and not just India, but what other countries should really think about when they're thinking of, about compute strategies because it's really clear what the U.S. is thinking. It's clear what China is thinking, but it's... Um, uh, it, it's to an extent clear what some European countries are thinking. It's really not clear uh, how other countries can begin to think of maintaining strategic autonomy in, in a market that is so uh, global and yet so concentrated. And also looking at uh, digital trade agreements and um, how they uh, affect AI regulation. I think it's a topic that not a lot of people work on, but I think it could be really interesting to look at. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to reading those. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, this has been great. Um, highly recommend our listeners um, read the report. We'll drop a link in. Um, it's very approachable. Um, uh, it's very easy to read. It's well done. Um, and uh, it's a good grounding point. I think we all hope for greater understanding and greater insight, but um, I think you've done a, a, a wonderful job of pulling together everything that's knowable today. So thank you very much for joining us and talking about it. Thanks so much for having me. This was super fun. It's